So we are continuing in our series in uh, the book of Habakkuk, uh, this short uh, little prophetic book. Uh, We are in chapter 2 of Habakkuk. We have heard Habakkuk's complaints. He's had two complaints thus far. First, he had his complaint uh, about the evil and wickedness of the the, the people of God around him, the the Israelites, the Judites who were there, who were doing wickedness, who were uh, full of violence, who were unjust, uh, who didn't uphold justice. And he complained to the Lord, how long are you going to be silent? And then the Lord comes and says, uh, I, I will no longer be silent. I'm going to bring about judgment, God's fatherly discipline on his people through the Babylonians, this wicked nation that goes around the earth uh, wreaking havoc, which led to the Habakkuk's second complaint. Really, Lord, that's the way you're going to go. I know you're God. I know that you have all power and authority, and I know that this is, uh, this is your way. But, Lord, I don't understand how a nation that is even more wicked can be used by you to discipline But now Habakkuk is standing at the watchtower looking for a response to his second complaint. He wants to understand. He wants to know, what are your ways, O Lord? And so now we have the Lord's answer to that second complaint. So with that, why don't we turn to the text. We're going to be reading Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 2 to 20. I'll include verse 1. It is just Habakkuk standing and and waiting for the Lord. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, uh, all his own, all peoples? Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations." All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink 
You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and the utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will, be over, will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, once, we, once again we come to you and ask for your help to understand your word. Show us your glory. Help us to wait upon you and to trust in you, the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are all sorts of conceptions of faith, sort of common conceptions of what faith is in our world. As soon as I think of the sort of contemporary common conceptions of faith in our culture and our world, I can't help but sing that 80s pop song from George Michael. It goes something like, I gotta have faith, faith, faith. Now, now, of course, he was wrestling with whether or not to give his heart to a girl. Uh, It really had no bearing on faith of what we're talking about in terms of biblical faith. But as a culture, faith is like this mysterious substance. You you have it or you don't, right? So that's why he was saying, I don't have it. I got to have it. I need it. You could also muster it up, you know. You got to muster it up. You got to, you got to. Build it up in you in order to get the things that you want. If I just have enough faith, I can get this thing. You can use it, faith that is, to plow ahead in the face of obstacles. You know, we just have enough faith. We can can defeat this team or we can win this battle or we can press on in this goal that we have. We just got to believe. We just got to believe. Faith can be pitted against reason and science, right? Faith, science. We do that culturally as well. More and more, faith has become something that you put in yourself, right? You've got to believe in yourself. Believe in you. So when Scripture talks about faith, what what is it talking about? Is it something that we muster up? Is it something easily lost? Is it just a general belief? Does it have some sort of magical power to heal or to make us rich? Some people believe. You just believe enough, you'll get money in the door or you'll get healed. just have to have enough of it. Maybe Habakkuk seems like a strange book of the Bible to go to, to talk about the nature of faith, right? Of, of all the books in the Bible, Rob, why, why come to this one here? Well, it's interesting. This is where Paul goes. Paul quotes this verse that we've looked at already a few times uh, throughout the service, that the righteous shall live by faith. 
He goes to Habakkuk. And so this morning, as we come uh, to this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, I think it is the central sort of height of this book, this little prophetic word. And it's a, it's a comment about how we are to be in the context of the world we live in before a living God. And what God says is that the righteous shall live by faith. And so this is my goal this morning, is to, to consider what is the character of biblical faith that we see here laid out for us in Habakkuk. And I think that there is great hope in this truth, that the righteous shall live by faith. There's great hope. So I want to look at the character of faith and just this hope that we have that, that the righteous shall live by faith. And we're going to look at the nature of faith in three parts, wrapping up this idea of the righteous shall live by faith. First, I want us to see that faith waits upon the Lord. Faith waits upon the Lord. Second, faith depends upon the Lord for life. Faith depends upon the Lord for life. And then lastly, we'll conclude with faith sees the Lord as the Lord. So with that, let's begin. Faith waits upon the Lord. We've already looked at this, but Habakkuk's been waiting for the Lord. At the outset, he was waiting for the Lord to answer his first complaint, right? How long, O Lord, are you going to take to answer my pleas, my cries? Now he's waiting for the Lord to bring about this discipline through the Babylonians, right? This is, this is the prophetic word that God gives. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they're going to come and they're going to sweep through and they're going to uh, take you away into captivity. That's the, the big picture that we see laid out for us in, in, in the rest of the, uh, the history of the, the Old Testament church is that the Babylonians indeed come. Nebuchadnezzar does come. He takes the people away into captivity. But here, Habakkuk is waiting for the Lord to explain what he's doing. He's sitting there at the watch post, at the watchtower, and he's, he's looking to see God's answer. You see, he's concerned that this wicked nation would also go unpunished. And so he says, I'll wait for your answer, Lord. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what you, O oh Lord, will say to me. Habakkuk is waiting for the Lord. He's waiting for the Lord to come, answer his concerns, and execute his plans. And this is the Lord's response to Habakkuk the second time, this passage. So he's waiting. He's waiting. Okay, Lord, I'm watching. And this is the Lord's answer. Wait. Wait. More waiting. Uh, some advertising schemes are so effective. Maybe, maybe you have some jingles in your own brain, but there's one that was effective uh, in, for me. I, will, I don't think I will ever forget it. And that is, uh, uh, it came out in the 80s. It was a Heinz ketchup commercial. I probably don't even have to say it now. You already know. The best things come to those who wait. And you had this picture, you know, of these people just sitting there with those glass bottles waiting for that ketchup to drip out. Um, that was their motto until they created a squeeze bottle. So. <laughs> but here in our text, the Lord says to Habakkuk, wait for it. Now, there's an inherent problem when someone tells us to wait. 
to, to say, just, just wait. There's an inherent problem. How do we know that what is coming is going to come to pass or that it will be better than what is now? Right? When, when your kids, when you tell your kids, just wait, be patient, they don't sit there thinking, of course, that makes complete sense. I know that whatever's coming is better. What, what do they say? No, I want it now. <laughs> right? we, we're, we're an impatient people by nature. A common trope in fiction movies, right, uh, is that a, a bride will sit there at the altar and be left, and she will wait, and she will wait. And then they do a cut scene where they show her in her parents' arms because the waiting never happened. How do we know that what is promised will come true? And the truth is, sadly, with grooms and maybe men in general, you might not have much confidence. But with the Lord, with God, we can have full confidence that what he says will come to pass. What he promises, he will do. The Lord speaks to Habakkuk here in verse 2 and says, Write this vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. Now, that's an interesting verse. What is this vision that's going to be written on the tablets? And who is this person that's running as they see it? Like, what is going on here? Well, um, that's a really good question. And often with verses like this, uh, we tend to skip over to the next verse, especially when we're reading prophetic. We just look at these, like, very enigmatic statements, and we're like, "Mm, I don't get it. I'm going to move on. I don't know if you do that. Uh, I'll be honest. I do that, and that's actually not a bad thing. Because when you move past it, you start to get context and you start to understand what those words meant. And so we're going to jump past that and come back to it in just a minute. But I want to go to the very next verse because it gives some explanation for that. Verse 3 says, for. There's your explanatory word, for, which means we're going to be given the reason why the vision should be written on tablets for the person who runs, who sees it. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed to time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, often in Hebrew, uh, if emphasis is wanted, the author will restate an idea. We, we see this all the time in Hebrew poetry. It's called parallelism. But here... God is emphatic. Five times he says that what he has promised will come to pass. It awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It will surely come. It will not delay. Therefore, it says in the middle, even if it seems slow, wait for it. So what about these tablets and this person running? The tablets represent the surety of God's word, that it will indeed come to pass. There are only a few other places where a prophet is told to write something on tablets. Most of the time they would write it on a scroll, but tablets were made of stone usually, or clay, or possibly wood, material less prone to decay or destruction, a symbol that the word that was written on it ought to stand immutable and true. We see this in The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah twice 
was told to write the prophecy on a tablet. We see this particularly, I want to read one verse in 30, Isaiah 30, verse 8, where God says, And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Write it on a tablet so that it stands forever. There is no question that this thing is going to come to pass. But more significantly than Isaiah, where do we see tablets? Where, where do we see them? Ten Commandments. At Mount Sinai, Moses goes up on the mountain, and on that mountain, God inscribes on stone those Ten Commandments. God himself writes them. Of course, those stone tablets are broken, not because God's word isn't true, but because our word isn't true. But those words stood as a testament to the authority of God, to the power of God, to the promises of God, to the faithfulness of God. God's word is true forever. And so it is here in Habakkuk. Well, Rob, what about the runner? Who's the runner? All these tablets were meant to be read. They were meant to be seen Maybe they were meant to be put in, in a prominent place in the city of Jerusalem, put up against a wall, stood so that when people came to read it and they saw the coming judgment that God was bringing in Babylon, those people who were heralds would take the word of the king of kings and go out to all the cities and byways and declare the absolute word of God. Heralds of the king going out across the land to declare the sureness of God's prophetic word. Wait for it. It's going to happen. I think as finite creatures, we are by nature impatient. Maybe in a world as frenetic as ours, we are particularly impatient, especially when waiting entails any sort of hardship or suffering or trial of some sort. I personally, maybe this is the most common way we struggle to wait is if there's a long line. Um, That's so frustrating. Or when there's a traffic jam. Uh, we're really impatient in those moments. But I think we also struggle even more so with the larger life matters. God, where are you? I am in the depths of despair and sorrow, and you seem so far off. I cannot bear this anymore. Or, God, why haven't you rid me of this sinful desire? You promised me your spirit that it would work in me and transform me and change me, that I would be sanctified, become more like Jesus, and yet I still struggle with this every day. Lord, how long? Or, Lord, why haven't you come again? Why haven't you yet made all things new? Why do you tarry so long? Why do you allow such injustices to go on and on unchecked in this world? We've all asked these questions, haven't we? And what does God say to us? He says, wait for it. What I promise will surely come to pass. God says, it may seem slow to you, but in my time frame, I do not delay. In fact, it doesn't happen too early and it doesn't happen too late. It happens at the perfect time, my appointed time. In fact, it even hastens to the end. In his purview, 
Things are going along just as they should to his final work. Friends, this is the nature of faith. It looks forward in hope upon God and his promises. And it rests knowing that all the words of our God are yes and amen. That his salvation and his judgments are sure. So the writer of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then what does the writer of Hebrews do after he says those words? He goes and says, By faith. By faith, Samuel. By faith. You know, on and on and on. All the way through the Old Testament. In Peter's second letter, he addresses scoffers who looked at the world and said, you know what? We've waited a long time. God is not coming again. It's not happening. And because God is just kind of absent, maybe he exists like some, you know, deistic God sets the world on a, on a, on a, on a clock and just lets it go, Right? God is, God is absent. He is, he is transcendent. He is other. He is not involved in our life. And therefore, God is not coming again. This is the argument of the scoffers in 2 Peter. And so, therefore, live how you want to live. Right? I, I mean, that's, that's essentially, I mean, our world today. Live how you want to live. God is not here. He is not present. He is not active. And what was, what was Peter's response to those words? Peter responded by saying, God indeed already visited the world in judgment by the flood, and he's coming again. And he's going to judge the world in fire, and he says this, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The day hastens on. God's work is accomplished. He is never thwarted. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, faith waits upon the Lord. It sees and recognizes who God is and what he's done and what he will do. But there's a corollary here in our text. The opposite of faith is pride. It is that hubris that takes matters into our own hands. It is to be puffed up. And this brings me to my second point. Faith depends upon the Lord for life. Right? It depends upon the Lord for life. In our text, we have one of the most famous quotes of Scripture we've already talked about. Um, but I doubt many of you knew that it came from Habakkuk. I'm curious. If I, I don't need to take a raise of hands or anything. But it's surprising, right? that the Apostle Paul was taking from this place. Paul quotes it at least twice and alludes to it elsewhere in his letters. And the writer of Hebrews also quotes it, as we've already read in our, in our service today. And really, in, in Paul's argument in Galatians that we read earlier, it is the climax of Paul's argument. Paul is defending the belief that salvation comes not by works of the law, but by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk. But now this is where it gets really 
interesting because honestly, Paul's making this argument about works of the law versus faith. What does that have to do with Habakkuk? That doesn't seem to be the context. Is, is Paul just pulling this idea out of context? Right? You know, we're trained in seminary to be very close to the text, that we would be uh, exegetical and historical, and that we would look at these things in their context, and we wouldn't do injustice to the text. And then you come across Paul, and he seems to just take this idea and rip it out of the context. You're like, well, does that, can, we, can we make the Bible say whatever we want? No, I don't think so. I think it just seems that way. Here in Habakkuk, God is concerned that Habakkuk and those faithful remnant in Judah would believe that he indeed is going to do what he promises to do, to both judge and to save. Justification, what Paul is talking about in Galatians, justification by works or by faith, what does that have to do with this? Well, I think Paul is taking the principle laid out in this verse, and it begins with this first line of that verse, which we skipped over. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Then, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So what is God saying? Whose soul is puffed up? Is it the Israelites who do wickedness? Is it the Babylonians who march across the land, who will march across the land? Is Habakkuk's soul puffed up? Whose soul is puffed up? Well, I think God's point is that anyone's soul is puffed up within him who does not put his or her trust in the living God. That's it. Whoever trusts in something other than the living God for their salvation, that soul is puffed up with pride. Pride drives the people of God to think that they can live however they want and that God won't judge them for it. So what do they do? They did violence and they let injustice rule. There was strife and contention in the land. That was all part and parcel to their their life. Why? Because of their pride. Their soul is puffed up. That's what we saw in chapter 1. But pride also drives the Babylonians to think that by their power and might they can rule the whole world that they can take everything and anything because there is no higher power than themselves. Might is right. And for Paul, pride is behind his opponents who believe that they can gain favor with God through their own obedience to the law. They are puffed up in their souls. And so God declares here in Habakkuk that this is what makes them unrighteous. Their belief that they don't need him. Whether the Israelites, whether the Babylonians, whether the Judaizers, or any one of us who thinks that we don't need God. I want you to notice something in this, you know, parallel, parallels are important in Hebrew. And I want you to notice this parallel here. He said, the first line of the parallel is, behold, his soul is puffed up. He is not upright within him. And the the antithesis to that is, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Notice what's missing from the first part, from the one who is prideful, who is puffed up. Notice what's missing. 
life. Life. But the righteous live by faith. Why am I making a big deal out of this? I think oftentimes we read this as faith is the manner in which the righteous live. Meaning, how do you live? Well, the righteous live by faith. That's the manner. They, they walk in faith. They are faithful. They do things that are faithful. And of course, that's true. Faithfulness is the lifestyle of God's people. But here in the context of the judgment of God and the comfort which Habakkuk is seeking, the comfort here is that despite the mayhem that is to come, despite the fact that they're going to be wiped out as a nation and be brought into exile, despite the fact that they're going to face all sorts of hardship and pain and suffering, that the righteous who trust in the Lord shall live. From a temporal outward perspective, it seems to Habakkuk and maybe to the faithful remnant that their life is in danger, that death is near at hand. Everything seems to be devolving. The world they know makes no sense anymore. And on top of that, there's a sure word coming that the wicked nation is going to sweep them away. And in the midst of our own world, I wonder, as well as Habakkuk, where everything seems to be falling apart, this world that we live in, we wonder, will I survive this? Am I going to survive this pandemic? Am I going to survive this political chaos? Am I going to survive the conflict I'm having with my family? Am I going to survive my own sin and the troubles that I face? Am I going to survive this? Will my kids survive this? I don't know if you've struggled with those things. But the answer that God gives is comfort. Put your hope and trust in me. Your life depends upon it. Trust in me. Your life depends upon it. This is faith to look and see the God who saves and to depend on that God. With one more idea about faith, This is sort of the big idea of faith. Faith sees the Lord as Lord. We come to this big chunk. Now, I went really slow over these first few verses, right, through verses 2 to 4. And now in verses 5 to 20, I'm going to skim. I'm going to barely touch any of it. Uh, I'm going to summarize it here for you. Basically, what we have here is the setup in verse 5. He sets it up. Here are the Babylonians, right? He describes them. They are arrogant. They are greedy. They are like uh, uh, the one who does wicked. They gather the nations to themselves. So he sets it up. He's already talked about them, so he doesn't go into great detail. And then he declares, woe, woe, woe to the Chaldeans, woe to those who would in their pride wreak havoc and destruction. And we see different types of that havoc and destruction throughout this section. The one who takes what is not his own, that's the first woe. The one who sets himself up and thinks he's living the comfortable life with all the stuff that he's already stolen. Uh, Woe to him, their life is forfeit. And then woe to him who does violence. Woe to the one who is violent and who has built his city on blood. Woe to him. Finally, 
who goes after idols, who makes false gods and trusts in his own creation. That's, that's, the, that, that's the gist of this. And this was the comfort, I think, that Habakkuk was looking for, right? He wanted to know, okay, the wicked Babylonians are coming. What are you going to do about their wickedness? I see what you're doing about ours, Lord, but what about theirs? And he says, the Lord says, woe to them. Woe to them. But there's two verses in this little section that stand out to us. Two verses. The first verse says this. Verse 13 and 14. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Is it not from the Lord of hosts? And then verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. What he wants Habakkuk to know is that his glory, not the glory of the Babylonians, not the glory of the Israelites, but his glory alone is going to cover the, the whole earth from, as we say in America, from sea to shining sea. But this is the whole world. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be made known. And then the last verse that we see here in verse 20. After all the woes that the Chaldeans are going to come to ruin, we see this word, but the Lord is in his holy temple. That's in direct contrast to those idols that are just made of gold, that can't speak, that are, that are nothing. And he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Two massive ideas. What are they? Well, first and foremost is that who is the God that we trust? What is he like? He's the one who made all things. He's the one who has all power and authority, who upholds all things. We looked at providence a few weeks ago. But more significantly, he is the one who in his judgment brings mercy, who redeems by the blood of his son. When we think about the glory of the Lord being revealed, what does John say about it? John says, you have beheld the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. Here is the one, the King of Kings, who comes and who redeems and who saves. As Habakkuk was looking forward, he was only looking forward to this period of exile and, and the wonder of God's power and judgment. But if we go forward in time after the exile, the people return and they come back, and they rebuild the temple and the tabernacle, and then we move forward, and there's this waiting and expectation that the Messiah would come, and here he comes, this little baby born in a manger that we're going to celebrate here in a, in a month or so. This baby comes, and he grows in stature and wisdom, and he comes as the living God, full of glory. And there on the cross, he bears upon himself the wrath and curse for prideful sinners like you and me. Why? That you and I might live. That just, just blows my mind. Are we really any different from the Israelites of old? Are we really any different even from the Babylonians? Seek power and 
Are we really any different from the Judaizers who try to, try to drum up salvation on our own? And, and here Jesus comes and he says, I love you and I'm dying for you and I'm going to bear the curse and wrath for you that you might live. And as we sit and we think about the wonders of the glory of Jesus Christ, as we see God in his holy temple, what else do we have to say? Except to be silent and wonder at the work of our living God. What is faith? Friends, if you have yet to put your faith and trust in this God, your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, I encourage you, encourage you, Wait, wait upon him for salvation. Depend on him for your life. Cast yourself on his mercy and grace and look to the Lord. Trust in the one who is able, the one who saves. Can't help but be silent in wonder and awe. What is faith? Well, righteousness comes by faith. And faith is a gift of God. It is not a work so that none may boast. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Let's pray.